Happy September, everybody. Are you back in the groove? You back in the swing of things? I imagine that's a, that's a hard no. I hope so somewhat. Um, let's stand. We're going to start just singing in Christ alone together. We're starting off Philippians tonight. So let's just uh, center our hearts on Jesus, on Christ, and worship him. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of Calls me home here in the power. 
returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand hey welcome to fellowship mosaic church we're glad you're here we are glad to stand in the power and the love of Christ together amen amen take a seat I'm going to welcome uh, Hannah Holly up to the stage to lead us through our prayer pause for this month. Hey, Mosaic. How is everybody doing tonight? Good. Hey, I'm Hannah. Um, every month we try to do what's called a prayer pause. So if you haven't caught one of these, then I'm glad you're here. So the time to do a prayer pause is set aside specifically so that we might actually meet and encounter the Lord that we're singing to <laughs> and actually encounter him and actually not miss that that's the point of why we meet, right? Is that we would encounter the God that we're singing to, that we would actually invite him in and not miss him. Because if we don't interact with the Lord, then man, this is in vain, right? What we're doing is in vain. It's not just about singing songs or talking about a good God. It's about interacting with him. It's about relationship. And so let's not miss his presence. This is a small way to make sure that we're crafting space for our hearts to pause and not miss him. So you see this little um, diagram behind me. In the middle, this reflect and refocus on God has two parts, this releasing of anything that might be standing against our ability to talk to the Lord or be with the Lord and engage with him, um, and this receiving, this two-part thing, to, re to then receive, where there's space, where we've released some stuff, we're now receiving from the Lord um, some things that will align our hearts with his again and fill our hearts. Um, so tonight, I, as I was praying through this time, I was thinking, I, I felt like, I wondered how many of us are coming into this room with some wastelands in our heart. I wonder how many of us have some scorched places um, in our hearts. And I think that those are some really hard places to be. I think everybody loves the idea of a stream in a desert, an impossible place where it's dry and it's scorched and then the Lord provides and there's a stream, right? Everybody loves that story. Everyone loves when the Lord does that. But nobody wants to be in the desert that leads up to that moment, right? It's a really hard place to be. But can we wait? Can we trust that God is a God of provision and that it's actually his heart and his desire to care for us in our scorched places? And even if we don't know how he'll do it, even if we're not sure exactly where the stream will be, where it will come from, what it will look like, can we trust that it's our God who does it? It is our God who provides. And we might not know when and we might not know how, but it is our God who provides for us. Can we trust that that's his nature? In the middle of our scorched places, can we trust that he sees us? Can we wait? So I'm gonna read a few passages over us and I would just, I would maybe ask that maybe, maybe we could all just put our hands out like this, just in a posture, a symbolic way to say, I receive, I choose to receive. And maybe everyone close your eyes. Let's invite the presence of the Lord here. Let's lock eyes with our creator. And let's receive all the word of God has just spoken over us. I'm gonna read a few passages over us. And I pray that we can just sit and let the truths not just run over our ears and over our minds, but seep into our hearts, into our
and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. And straight from the mouth of the Lord in Jeremiah, just close your eyes and picture the Lord saying this right to you, saying your name, because he calls us by name. This is for you, right there in your chair. This is from the Lord to you. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. I will satisfy your weary soul, your languishing soul, I will replenish. Thank you, Lord, for your comfort. And for your love, we abide in you now. Amen. Let's stand again as we sing.
that posture of submission, with that posture of humility and, and surrender and sacrifice before the Lord. Let's uh, pray our offering prayer together. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son, and your Spirit. Amen. Rising sun to the setting same I will pray 
our eyes and our vision on your faithfulness, King Jesus. And Father in heaven, by the Holy Spirit, help us to see, to know, to stand on the firm foundation that is your faithfulness to us and your faithfulness from generation to generation. Oh, Jesus, you are so good and you have been so good always. We love you. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Man, I was expecting children's ministry. Take a seat, take a seat, take a load off your feet, and y'all didn't give it to me. Hey, um, we have, I've really enjoyed the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've taken August just to walk through some of the core values and vision statements of who we are as a church and what drives what we do. Um, and so we began back in the last week of July with, with Jason taking us through God's heart for the nations to reach people who have never heard the name of Jesus, and if someone doesn't go, will never hear the name of Jesus. And that urgent need and that priority of our church family to be involved in that kind of work. We talked about what, what drives everything we do as a church is the desire to see people be changed by Jesus, to have a life-changed story where our metaphor plays out in their life. We call ourselves Fellowship Mosaic, and, and that mosaic image is built around the idea that every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us has been hurt and harmed by our sin and the sin done to us, and one of the first steps in life change is having a sanity moment where you realize that's true. Um, we use a lot of CR language around here where we say, my life's out of control, and I'm powerless to change it. I can't do it on my own. And so life change happens when we realize we are broken and we need help. And despite how broken we are, every single person matters to God. And if you wanted to try to put a price tag on how much you matter to God, it is the life of his son, Jesus. That that is how much we matter, that Christ offered himself for us 
and rose again. And so when we trust in him, when we receive the love of Jesus, he brings us into something new called his church. And all of these broken people coming together under the love of God begin to paint a picture of God, not us. It's not our story of how amazing we are or the changes happen in our lives. It's actually the story of what God has done in our lives. So we live to glorify him. And so we wanna be a place that tells that story. How do we do that? Um, Three basic commands that govern who we are. Uh, We wanna love God. We wanna be a people that delights in and cherishes God. We wanna love others well. We wanna be a people that see the needs and the values of other people and live with others in mind. And then finally, we wanna make disciples. The way we have been changed by the love of Jesus, we wanna help other people be changed by the love of Jesus. And and those are the core things that drive what we wanna do as a church. So as we're kind of wrapping up this season of going through who we are and what drives what we do, tonight's a little bit of a hinge night. Uh, We've talked about those core mission and vision, core values and beliefs. Those aren't changing. Those are who we've been as a church since we were founded, and those will always be what drive us. So every single year, we're gonna come back to those over and over again and try to keep our love for Jesus and our commitment to his mission at the forefront. In addition to that, our church, Fellowship Bible Church broadly, is governed by a group of elders, some men that that this body has recognized have godly character and wisdom to seek the Lord on our behalf. And every year in February, those elders go away on a retreat together and they pray about what's happening in our church and what is the immediate this year focus. It's always driven out of those core things, but they are immediate expressions of how we live that out. And so they come back to the church with some parameters. These parameters don't replace the mission and vision. They don't take the place of what we always do. They say, hey, as you're doing what we do as a church, These are some things we want you to pay special attention to this year. So tonight, just briefly, before we jump into the sermon, I just wanna lay those out to you to to make you aware of what the elder parameters, the the concerns the elders have for fellowship are for this year. So we're just gonna walk through them. I'm gonna do my best to kind of just highlight what they are, and hopefully we will see all of these play out throughout the rest of the year. The first one, um, in many ways, is obvious, but has to keep being said, as you plan, continually ask the question, how does this objective emphasis schedule uh, advance our vision and mission? Why do they have to say that? Because there are a million great things a church can get involved in. There are a million great things we can do, and so many churches get in the place where they get involved in a good thing at the expense of the main thing. And so what they have said is in all of the good opportunities that we have, always look back to our purpose as a church and make sure that the things we're doing are laser focused on what God has called us to be as a people. So they just always want that to be out in front. Uh, The second thing they said is as you plan, continually ask the question, how can we address the many facets of diversity, both inside and outside our church family? So inside, outside our church family, particularly talking about people who are currently at fellowship and then looking at the community of Northwest Arkansas and how can we love well um, all the different facets of diversity that are here. And they encourage us, yes, absolutely think about race and ethnicity, but don't stop there. Think about people with special needs and disabilities. Think about the deaf community, ministry to the elderly, etc. There's always a danger when a, a church is thinking about its ministry programs to pick the middle of the bell curve 
that 60% that makes up the large majority and plan everything for that big fat majority in the middle and fail to care for people who are not in that big majority in the middle. And so the elders have challenged us, don't, don't forget people on the margins. Don't forget the people that we might overlook as we're planning. And so these, as you can see, the elders are giving very broad parameters. They don't micromanage every detail that ministries need to do. They've just said, these are the things we want you to be praying about, things that we want you to have your eyes on. Uh, they then said, as we plan, ask the question, how do we address the negative effects of social and electronic media upon children, students, and adults? Help individuals affirm that their identity is in Christ, not in being conformed to the pattern of this world. Um, this is, in, in many ways, one of the most overwhelming to me, and how do we even start, even begin? Um, I'm sure you all read the news. You know all the, the scary statistics of what's happening to us emotionally and relationally as a more digitally connected world. Somehow we become increasingly digitally connected and decreasingly relationally connected, and that has devastating effects on our health. And so the elders have asked us to think about and pray about how can we as a community address that? Um, and one of the things we're having conversations with right now, Dr. Gary Oliver, who's one of our teaching pastors here, one of our uh, members here, uh, I've asked, I'm going to be talking with Gary about, hey, what can we do for our congregation to learn what it means to connect with each other well? Uh, and so I don't know what those answers are going to look like, what that's going to be, but pay attention in the coming months. And, and we want to grow together in how we relationally connect to combat, combat some of the negative effects of living in such a digitally connected world. Three more. Begin the process of working through the training center to identify leaders and groups who will plant new healthy churches. Okay, if you've lived with us through the last four years of Mosaic, my guess is some of you might be saying never again. Okay, we were a part of launching three congregations in 2020 and 21, and it involved sending several staff people, dozens, hundreds of, of people, honestly, from this body to go help start those congregations. Um, and we've said this before, it was not ideal to launch three congregations in the same year, okay? That, that's not a plan we would ever try to repeat again, okay? Um, there were some things about how God moved that that happened, and that was really hard. But there would be a devastating mistake we could make that because it was so hard to launch three at once, that we would say, we will never launch a new church again. That we'll hunker down and say, we can't lose anybody, let's just keep everybody here. Um, the reason we start new churches is because there are people who don't know Jesus. And so we are going to send people. We are going to send members of this body. We are going to encourage, hear this, we are going to encourage members of this congregation to leave this congregation, people we love, not because we don't like them. We're gonna encourage them to leave because they are so faithful that people in other places need their ministry, need their discipleship so they can come to know Jesus. We've got four members of this congregation right now who are praying and actually in preparation and training to go to unreached peoples across the globe. We've got people in this congregation that are praying about going to less reached parts of the United States. And this will happen, we are seeking this. And so I wanna encourage as a congregation to be praying toward that end. Don't give in to the kind of fear that would say hunker down and don't let anybody ever leave again, okay? We want to be generous and releasing with our congregation. I can tell you this, 
Cassie and I, our family, have no plans to go anywhere. Uh, we are committed to this congregation, and when we, when we came back to Mosaic, we, we said, like, hey, we're, we're in this for the long haul. Um, we want to be here. And so short of something um, like a burning bush moment, we're, we're planning on being here. But part of what we're going to do here is try to encourage and raise up people to go. And so we just want to put that on your radar. We are having those conversations right now about what does it look like in the next few years for this congregation to be a part of sending people out to start new churches. In the next year, develop plans and opportunities to serve the poor through our strong partnerships with Samaritan Community Center and the Samaritan Churches in Rogers and Springdale. Uh, We have a nonprofit community center that is actually opening up a new facility right over here on the corner of our property this month. I'm so excited about the opportunities that is going to bring for us to love Northwest Arkansas really, really well. And you're going to be hearing a lot more in the coming weeks about how we can partner with Samaritan Community Center and serve well. We also have two church congregations, um, Samaritan Church in Springdale and the church formerly known as Samaritan Church Rogers that is now known as Christ and Neighbor. They had that name change just so they could distinguish in Rogers between the community center and the church. And these churches are strategically placed to love and serve the poor. So we want to talk about how do we partner with them and encourage them. And you're going to hear a lot more about that to come. The final one is to develop a multi-year plan in every age category that communicates the blessing of generous living and giving. Our elders want us to be a generous church. One of the best ways we do that is through the Align class that will be coming up this January that is an entire discipleship curriculum built around helping us be a generous people. Do you catch a theme through all these elder parameters? Our elders are encouraging us to look out. There there seems to be, I haven't heard them say this, but when I read this, there seems to be a concern that we as a church might become entirely inward focused on our programs meeting our needs to make our people comfortable. And it seems like the elders are encouraging us to keep our eyes out on people who aren't currently having their needs met here. They want us to look out on how do we be generous as a congregation? How do we reach people that might be on the margins? How do we start churches among people who don't have a church? And so I think that is a direction that our elders are encouraging us to go. And I want to invite us to pray toward that direction as a congregation. And throughout the year, you're going to be hearing about more ways that we can do those things. Um, All of those do not replace our bread and butter ministry that we do every day here at Fellowship. But that's the direction that our elders have put on uh, our church's uh, trajectory for the year. And so I want to invite you now. We're, We're going to take a time to pray, and then we're going to jump into our discussions of Philippians. Lord, we love you, and I thank you for how your spirit works through the leadership of this church. And I do pray um, that we will continue to be a very healthy church, that we'll be be a church where people's lives are changed every day, um, where people have deep relational connection and community. And Lord, I pray that we will be a church that grows to be more like Jesus. And we know that part of being more like Jesus will be loving others well, that it will be looking to people who don't know you, people who are overlooked, So God, I pray that you will show us how we can be a community that does that really well, that can love our neighbors that aren't coming into these doors right now and may not know how much they matter to you. So God, lead us as a church to do that well. We love you and we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this fall, for the next three months, We are going to be walking through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I am so excited about this series. And what we want to do tonight is just very briefly preview what this book of the Bible is all about, do a brief overview of of this letter. 
And I personally think that the fact that our New Testament, the part of the Bible that was written after the time of Jesus, is filled with letters is one of the quirkiest things about our faith. I mean, if you think about like spiritual texts, like all of the religions of the world and the kinds of things that they have, you have epic poetry, you have narratives and stories, you have laws of behavior. And then we have tucked in at the end of our Bible some notes written from people while they were traveling, which I think is just odd. And what that, I think, tells us about our faith is that our faith is rooted in real life. That the big and epic ideas of the story of God that happened in Scripture get lived out in the everyday reality of real communities. And so we have these letters where leaders who knew Jesus personally in the first decades after his life on earth wrote letters to local churches like ours addressing their very real needs of what they were going through, saying, hey, as you walk through Jesus and these hard things, walk with Jesus and these hard things are happening, this is how you can be faithful. This is what Jesus would say to you. And so I think that tells us something about the very embodied, feet in the, gra- feet in the dirt life that walking with Jesus is. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about Philippians, give you some setting. It's written by a man named Paul. And if you don't know Paul's story, let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Paul was a Jewish rabbi and teacher. Um, We don't know for sure, but he probably was born about 10 years after Jesus would have been born. He's probably about 10 years younger than Jesus was. There's no reason to think he necessarily ever met Jesus. I suspect if he did uh, meet Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, we probably would have heard about that. So he probably was a young man in training while Jesus was on earth. And he was trained by one of the best Pharisees in Jerusalem. You heard that word Pharisee from teaching about Jesus before? Who are the Pharisees? They're the bad guys, right? They're the people that in all of the paintings about the Gospels are always snarling in the corner and they have shadows over their face so you can see how evil they are, right? Paul was trained by the bad guys. He was trained by those people that always come off looking bad in the Gospels. And one of the things that marked a Pharisee was they were passionate patriots for Israel. And what they wanted to see was they wanted to see Rome overthrown And they believed that God would intervene and deliver Israel from Rome when Israel purged itself of everyone who was unfaithful. That was their driving passion. They thought God hasn't rescued us from this oppressor Rome yet because we aren't pure enough as a people. And so they're always going around trying to catch people sinning. It's like in, in class, you remember this reality in elementary school when the teacher says, if one more kid speaks, you're all losing recess, and suddenly everyone in the classroom becomes a monitor ready to jump on the next person that talks? Do you remember this? Yes? These were the Pharisees. They're walking around thinking, if anyone disobeys God's law, it'll be another year till God comes back and rescues us. And so they're going around watching for bad behavior because of the sincere conviction that if they could just get it right, God will rescue them. And Jesus comes along and just blows that up and says, you are completely missing it. You are completely missing it. God is not looking for perfect behavior of the whole nation before he will rescue you. That's not how God works. Paul was trained by these guys. And so when people started following this Messiah who had so much conflict with his teachers, Paul did not feel very good about this Christian movement. So just like a good Pharisee, he was trying to snuff it out. And so he's going around persecuting even to the point of death people who are following Jesus until one day 
He's traveling on a road and gets struck blind by Jesus himself. And Jesus shows up to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? It so wrecks Paul's life that he goes away and spends three years meditating, like trying to make sense of what it means that this, what he thought false Messiah was actually the Messiah he had been waiting for, and he missed it. And then he comes back. All of that radical passion for stopping the church became a radical passion for spreading the message. And he, what he did that was so unique was all the other early Christians were preaching in Jerusalem. They're telling all the Jews. And Paul said, no, 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 Jesus is the Messiah of the nations. And he left Israel and started planting churches, telling people about Jesus all across Europe. And he becomes one of our first great missionaries to leave where he was and take the gospel where it wasn't. And he would come into town, he would, he would tell people about Jesus, he'd start a small church, and then he'd move on to the next town. He'd train up some local leaders and say, this is how you be a church that follows Jesus. And then he would write them letters to follow up on his teachings and see how things are going. But after he had done this for a while, eventually, those Pharisees that he used to work for, they caught him. They accused him and they threw him in jail. And his ministry apparently comes to a screeching halt. And he's shipped off to Rome to stand trial for C- before Caesar for being a disturber of the peace and rebelling against Rome. And it's during this time that he's in prison that he writes a letter to the Philippians. The Philippian church is a church in what we would call today modern-day Greece. Back then it would have been called Macedonia. It's named for Philip, if you've ever heard of Alexander the Great. This is named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip. And something really unique about Philippi, it's this great trade city on a, on a route that brought all of Asia to Rome. You heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Well, the roads from Asia led to Rome through Philippi. So it's a really important city. But there's something really unique going on in Philippi. At this time, the way empire works is you send your army out to conquer all of the nations, and then you make them pay absurd taxes. Where do all those taxes go? They go back to Rome. Anybody here visited Rome? Seen those massive, beautiful buildings? Who do you think paid for those buildings? All of the conquered people, right? Who gets to live in Rome and enjoy all of that wealth? Roman citizens. So, if you are a poor person in the empire and you want to become a Roman citizen to enjoy the wealth of Rome, you have to do something to earn Roman citizenship. One of the best ways to do that is to go fight for the Roman army. And if you go fight for the Roman army, you can earn your Roman citizenship, get to move to Rome and be one of the wealthy, important people. But then there became a problem. Rome was overcrowded. Rome had too many people, and instead of being this big, beautiful, rich city, it was becoming this disgusting, dirty, overcrowded city. And it was no longer such a cool thing to live in Rome, so they had to solve the problem. So they started at a city named Philippi that had been destroyed. They started a Roman colony. And what they said is, all of the tax benefits that make Rome so great, we're going to send some of those to Philippi also. And we're going to make it a city where everyone who lives in Philippi is a Roman citizen and doesn't have to pay taxes and just gets to enjoy the benefits of Rome. It was New Rome over in Greece. So these people in Philippi 
would have been people who gave their life of service to Rome to try to earn their Roman citizenship so they could then enjoy the benefits of being Roman. And then along comes Paul, and he says, Caesar is not the ruler of the world. Caesar is not the one who gives you the benefits worth living for. Jesus is the ruler of the world. And he started a church right in the heart of a Roman colony. And this letter to the Philippians is written to this people. So what are some of the the big ideas that come across in Philippians? The first one is this idea of citizenship. You can understand why that would be important for the Roman group, right? There's this word citizenship that only shows up here in Philippians. It comes in two really key places. Um, Take a look at these passages on on citizenship. The first one is in Philippians chapter 1. You wouldn't recognize it in your English Bibles. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Anybody see the word citizenship in there? It's very odd the way this happens in languages, but in Greek, their word citizenship could also be a verb. We have no way to translate that smoothly, like go citizenize. Like there's not a way to say it. The best way we can maybe say it is live out your citizenship or or be a good citizenship or be a good citizen. But the way the NIV tries to capture that is it says conduct yourselves. So Paul says, hey, you Roman citizens that cherish that, live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of Christ. And then in chapter three, he takes that even further. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Do you hear what he's saying to all those proud Romans? Your privilege, the thing that you work so hard for, Paul's going to say, everything I used to think was so great, I count it as garbage compared to knowing Jesus. And he would say to the Roman citizens, count your Romanness as garbage next to knowing Jesus. Now, I'm going to try to make the application point for us as gently as I can. Um, Being American is really cool. I like it. It comes with a lot of privileges, and it's a really sweet thing. And I have every reason to think that this wonderful, great, peaceful country is going to spend the next 18 months tearing each other apart over what it is to be American. And I think Paul's message to the American church today would be your first loyalty and citizenship is not to the United States of America. It's to the kingdom of heaven. That is where your heart loyalty... That doesn't mean you have to be anti-American. Look, my loyalty is to my wife, Cassie. In a vow... To her, I said, I forsake all others. Does that mean I'm anti all the women on earth and I hate them? No, it means I have a special allegiance to her that doesn't apply to anyone else. To be a follower of Jesus means your first loyalty is to the citizen, to the kingdom of heaven. The next major thing in theme in Philippians is the theme of joy and partnership. This letter has the word joy more than any other letter in the New Testament. Paul is just just oozing joy on every page. But that joy has a purpose. If I, if I read a letter from somebody that was talking about overwhelming joy and they said it's because my child was born, would we say that was a letter about joy or is it a letter about the birth of their child? Well, both and. It's a letter about joy because they have a kid. The, le- the letter of Philippians is a letter of joy because of their partnership. You see, Paul was arrested, and when he was arrested by Rome, everyone abandoned him. 
And everyone who had been his partner didn't want anything to do with him. Just like the followers of Jesus on the night he was arrested, all of his followers went away. Suddenly, Paul has all these friends across the Roman Empire. He gets arrested and none of them will return his letters. And he's sitting in jail alone. And what we know from this letter is Paul is sitting in jail, abandoned and forgotten. And then one day, a man named Epaphroditus, a member of the church at Philippi, shows up at his jail cell and says, Paul, we in Philippi haven't forgotten you. We love you. Paul, we pray for you every day. In fact, we love you so much that we collected an offering with the money that we had and we sent it here to take care of your needs. And Epaphroditus sits with Paul in jail and updates Paul on what's going on in Philippi. And Paul is so overcome by not being forgotten that he sits down and he writes a letter to the Philippians about the great joy he has. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter one. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership means it's the same word for fellowship. It's what we have in common. He says, we share this together. We share our love for Jesus together. And Paul takes the next step. He says, I have so much joy because of our connection in the gospel. Look what he says in chapter two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Paul says, I am overflowing with joy because we share our love for Jesus together. But Epaphroditus told him there was some fighting and bickering going on in the church. So Paul said, oh, I've never known a deeper joy than being connected with other people by the love of Jesus. I want you to have that joy, church, that you would know the joy that comes from having the most important thing in common, our love for Christ. That's the big idea of this entire letter. Christian joy comes when the most important thing we share in common is Christ. And that will overcome anything that could possibly divide us and it will give us the resources to work through anything. So my prayer for our church as we approach this letter this fall is that we would find our fellowship, our sharing together rooted entirely in our love for Jesus and the way Jesus has loved us. So what we're gonna do tonight as an act of worship to celebrate um, just this incredible letter and what God's doing in our church, we are actually gonna read out loud the book of Philippians from beginning to end. And what I'm gonna invite you to do as, you, as we go through this process, there's a lot of different ways that you can engage this. Um, if, if seeing is distracting, close your eyes and just listen. Uh, the words will be up on the screen. You also can, can grab your Bibles and read along. But I encourage you to listen through that lens of you are a church trying to follow Jesus. And Paul is writing to you, when things are hard, you're going through the normal everyday challenges of life, and he's writing to you saying, this is where the deep well of Christian joy comes from. So this is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long for all, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the, fr the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, 
if any sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send him back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. 
If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or that I already have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Join together. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Iodia, I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whether you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at least you renewed, at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take a moment, just a moment in quiet. If something stood out to you, if something grabbed your attention, take a moment to talk to the Lord about it. What might he be telling you through this letter? And commit this fall to prayer. Spend some time telling the Lord, thank you for confessing where you've fallen short, celebrating what you should rejoice in, or asking him for help in an area he's pointed out to you.
joy to suffer for you. We want to consider it gain to be with you, whether in life or death. We want to live for your kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. And we want to be known by our love and by our joy. May we dwell on your spirit and the fruit he brings. Amen. All right, Mosaic. Go in peace to love and to serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.